The book taking center stage on the show this week has a very unique distinction. When I finished it and closed the back cover, I said, to an empty room no less, that might just be the weirdest book I have ever read. Weird doesn't mean bad though. And since Librabray's Going Bovine won the American Library Association's Prince Award Medal in 2010, you can be assured that a lot of very important people in the book world thought it was pretty amazing. I'm always intrigued when a book I have never heard of hits my radar. And that's what happens on today's episode. Going Bovine tells the story of Cameron, a jaded stoner teenager just cruising through life until he is diagnosed with mad cow disease. What follows is a road trip of epic proportions. The only question is, is Cameron actually on the road trip he thinks he's on to save his life and the world? Or is it all one big hallucination leading to his death? Along the way, he finds friends in a guy from school named Gonzo and a Norse god turned garden gnome named Balder, as well as an angelic guide named Dulcie. They make stops at megachurches, physics labs, spring break hotspots, and more. I told you, it's a wild ride. Today, you'll hear my guest and I chat about what it was that made Going Bovine so appealing to her as a self-described edgy teen. We talk about the way the book represents OCD, existential questions of life and death, toxic positivity, drug use, and unlikable characters. We consider the ways in which Going Bovine is a time capsule of the year it was published, 2009, and the questions we might like to ask Libba Bray about it if given the opportunity. My guest today is Carlin Greenwald. Carlin is an author, graphic novelist, and screenwriter hailing from Manhattan Beach, California. She's worked developmental gigs at companies including Illumination Entertainment, Mandeville Films, Vertigo Entertainment, and 141 Entertainment and currently works as an administrative assistant at boutique book packager Cake Creative. Her books were signed to WME the same week she graduated from undergrad in 2018. Her adult debut, Sizzle Reel, is out on April 18th, and her YA debut, Time Out, which is co-written with actor and producer Sean Hayes and producer Todd Milliner, is out on May 2nd. Obviously, Carlin is having a big year, and you can follow along with all of the excitement on Instagram at Carlin underscore G and on Twitter at Carlin Greenwald. Stay on top of all of our community happenings on social media too. We are at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook when you search the SSR podcast or the SSR book club. As always, I would like to offer a friendly reminder that SSR is an independent podcast, which means that I am a one woman show and not backed by a larger organization. The contributions I receive from fans like you play a huge role in keeping the proverbial lights on so I can continue to create the content you enjoy. If you love what you hear on the SSR podcast, I invite you to learn more about becoming a patron. For as little as $1 a month, you can support my work and get some awesome perks in return. Check it out at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. This week, we get things rolling with a new month in the SWR, that's Shit We Read, book club in Patreon. The book is The Chosen and the Beautiful, and it is not too late to jump in. I hope to see you there. If Patreon isn't your thing, but you still love SSR and want to support it, you can leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or share this episode on social media. 
I'm lucky enough to be partnered with Inkwell Threads to bring you 20% off on all kinds of bookish swag. Shop the whole collection with me at www.inkwellthreads.com SSRpod or use code SSRpod at checkout to cash in on that 20% offer. There are new styles dropping all the time and everything is cute and high quality. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Carlin. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay. So I I just said this to you before we started recording, but I'm going to need your help on this episode because we're talking about what might just be one of the weirdest, wildest books that I have ever read in my entire life, Going Bovine by Libba Bray. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I read like really weird books when I was a teenager. Like I was just, I, that was like how I was edgy. And so. Yeah, I mean, we all have our things. Like what makes you edgy? <laughs> Yeah, so that was, yeah, books. <laughs> that was what I mean. I was like, I watch Audrey Hepburn movies, and that's why I'm edgy. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Okay, so you put this book on my radar. I had never heard of it before, and I was I was shocked to learn that it's a Prince Honor winner. Like, this is a big deal book, so I'm going to throw it to you. Tell me what you remember about this book, why it was so important to you and your edgy pop culture education as a teenager, and why you chose it to come back to for this episode. Yeah, so I think I read this when I was like probably 14, 15, somewhere in that range. And it was, I think I had read Beauty Queens, which was also a Libba Bray book. And so I was seeking out more of her. And so to me, like anytime I read a lot of like thrillers and mysteries. And so if I read contemporary, it had to have something like some weird little twist to it. And so I look at, I think I was like on vacation or like at my grandparents' house, like out of state. And I was just like at a local bookstore and I see this book and I'm like, okay, road trip. I like road trips. I'll, I'll go with this. And like, I, I like, I had no idea what it was like, kind of no idea what it was about. I was like, okay, let's pick this up. And I just remember, first of all, like not understanding what was happening, but at the same time being so enthralled, because it's just like, it feels like a fever dream in a way that like, I don't think was very con- like, I don't remember really having that happen that much. It was a little bit more common, I feel like in the 2000s, 2010s to have like these very strange books. But this one like took the cake for being like the strangest. And I feel like it stuck with me so long because I had or I have had like OCD and metaphobia, which is a fear of vomiting. And so their character of Gonzo, it was like the only time I ever saw someone who was like paranoid about food poisoning. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) it's me. And I think that's honestly one of the reasons why this book stuck with me for so long. Like besides it being really weird and like entertaining in a way that it wasn't like an experience I'd had a lot before, it was that. And so I just never forgot this 
book and I feel like it influenced my writing like in my late teens early 20s like I did try to write things that were like weird and like where there was some element of like is this really happening or not like I tried out the surrealism for a hot second and then ended up going more into like straight up contemporary and mystery and stuff like that but yeah I don't know this book is just and I don't even know if Libba Bray's written anything like it since it was probably like very much a product of its time but yeah, I was just like trying to think of what books have I read that like would be fun to talk about because like I've never heard anyone talk about them otherwise. It's like this one. Welcome to my brain. Welcome. <laughs> I feel welcomed into your brain. Okay, so as far as Libra and the way this book works into her larger catalog, I did find a quote from her where she says that this is the book that she had to write, even though she knew it might be career suicide. <laughs> so she knew this was weird. Like she knew this was weird. I didn't really get a lot of context as to like why this was the book that she had to write, but she clearly felt very strongly about it because she was willing to put it out in the world, even though she thought that it could tank. She had already started the Gemma Doyle trilogy, which is, I think, like her best known book for or her best known series for a lot of readers. We have done one episode about that trilogy, which I will link in the show notes. You point out a couple of things that I think are really interesting. So the first is that this book is a product of its time. And I feel like we can explore that more as we talk about the novel. And like, I was trying to put myself back in 2009. I was 19. So I was like, not really reading a lot of YA. Although this book in a lot of ways, like doesn't read like YA. But I was trying to think about like, what it would have been about 2009 that might have inspired Libra to write this kind of book for teenagers. So that's one thing I want to talk about. Another thing that I want to talk about is the sense of it being like a fever dream. And, you know, I didn't know what was real and what was fake, and I'm not sure that it matters. So I think that's something that we can talk about. And the other kind of big picture question that I was reflecting on as I was preparing to jump on to chat with you today is this idea of like, I think this book gives teen readers so much credit and respect which I really like and I wonder if that's part of what you're talking about where like and I, and I was trying to think about books that I read when I was a teenager that that I had a similar experience with maybe like I was a teenage fairy by Francesca Leah Block where it was like I know that this book is maybe above my head in some ways but it's making me feel smart and it's making me feel like I've been given the opportunity to like make sense of something that isn't necessarily like this straightforward narrative. And I think that in itself is really important. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of, what was the question again? <laughs> I mean, I don't even think I gave you a question. I think this is like the theme of this conversation is like, I don't know that there's direct questions and answers. I just have a lot of thoughts. Yeah. And I think those are just like some things that we can talk about as we move our way through this bizarre story. And I'm curious, I guess, like if I were to, if I were to distill that brain dump into one question, it's like, to what extent do you think the fact that like this book just made you feel like it was respectful of you and that it made you feel like it was talking to you like an adult intellectual reader? Like how much do you think that played into this being a favorite of yours? Yeah, I mean, I think that that does play in. It was probably a lot more nebulous when I was younger because I just remember, like I said, it just felt like something that I hadn't seen before. And now that I like think about it, I'm like, was it probably, it was probably speaking to something that I hadn't read before. And like on the reread, I realized it was very like overt about the fact that this kid was dying. And like, yeah, it didn't shy away from that. And I was like reading it now. I'm like, this is the most terrifying scenario I can imagine being in as like a teenager where like 
you're just living your normal life and then all of a sudden you get this like rare like untreatable disease that no one understands really or like it's almost the butt of jokes and i feel like matt cow disease like is still like no one gets it if you <laughs> told you had mad cow disease right like yeah it's crazy and it's like you know what like this scenario is so outlandish but it's like this could happen and i feel like it it like acknowledges the fact that like teenagers probably do think about these kinds of things of just like like what would i do if like what's going on with my life if i feel like kind of a loser and then all of a sudden it's like cut short like what would i do with that time like would it be enough to change anything does it even matter like it really got in it got existential in a way that I hadn't remembered from the initial read. I think it like on some level you can just kind of like enjoy it as like, oh, this is weird and fun and like ignore the ending almost. Yeah. Or like it's left ambiguous enough to be like, oh, it doesn't matter <laughs> whether or not he dies. Nothing matters. <laughs> so it was like you could either turn off your brain and just enjoy it, but like if you thought about it, it was yeah, I mean it it felt like in the reread, it's kind of like this feels kind of like Holden Caulfield, like in just the way of like I hadn't remembered reading a lot of um like I just haven't read a lot of straight boy protagonists in a long time, and I think there's probably also something to that of like whenever an author who primarily writes like female protagonists like when they do venture into like writing a boy and like I don't know I think that's also like meaningful and interesting way like. There was that part to it. And then, yeah, I don't know, it didn't shy away from, like, this kid is so unlikable. Yes. In, like, a way that I don't even know if it transcends the fact that he's a dude. Like, we probably give him more credit because of that. But, like, he's so unlikable. And you just, you're along for the ride. I... Okay, so you said a lot of interesting things that I'm unpacking in my head. So I, I think what you're saying about the fact that he is a boy protagonist, like, I would imagine that there were a lot of, teen readers in 2009 that enjoyed Libba Bray's work and were ready and waiting for whatever she was going to write next, but were, were used to reading her books about girls. And so they were probably like, oh, this is interesting. I did find a couple of blog posts um, written by people who have come to this book either again or for the first time as adults who were talking about how like it was the first time that they had read about a straight boy teenager losing their virginity and how that was like kind of you know mind-blowing for them they had never like read that specific experience but I also want to dig into his likability because I love talking about you know a protagonist likability whether it matters if a character or a main character or a protagonist or a narrator is likable I especially love unpacking this with authors um who really like think about these things in depth so let's talk about Cameron and like why he's unlikable and why it works. So he's like, he just is coasting. He's a high school junior. He has this twin sister, Jenna, who is like, I think he, the quote is that she's pre-majoring in perfection. Like she's this cool girl. She has the perfect boyfriend. She has the hot friends. And the fact that they move around the same school hallways every day just kind of draws more attention to the fact that he is completely phoning it in. He doesn't really have any friends. He has this job at Buda Burger that he hates and like doesn't make any effort at. He doesn't work very hard in school. Something that I thought was interesting is that the book is very straightforward about weed and about drug use, which I feel in 2009 was probably very unusual that it's so straightforward about like, oh, and I was smoking weed in school and then I was smoking weed at home and like this was good weed and this yeah. was bad weed. Like I think if I'd read that as a kid, that would have been like, kind of brand new for me. 
so yeah, like let's talk a little bit more about Cameron. Why does that work? Even though he's so unlikable, like why do you think that works to draw us into the story? I mean, it's interesting because it's like I was trying to think back on like what movies like were out then because it's like that was more common to have boy protagonists and those sort of things. And I was like, is he a lot like that? Like, is this something that like would have had a template or is this new? Couldn't really remember. But like, I think that the media, the idea of like this mediocre kid, the stoner thing, but it was in a way where like it wasn't really played for laughs that I thought was interesting. Like, it was just like, this is this kid's life. He doesn't really have anything going. It's like the only way he could like get through is by smoking weed, but it's not necessarily sad. It's just like, it's very neutral. And so I felt like it was just interesting to not have like this judgment on it as either like positive in like a funny way or negative in like, a oh, he's like gonna, you know, issue of the week kind of like, oh, he's gonna get addicted to weed or whatever. They were always worried about the parents with showing stoners. And so that, like, it was weirdly humanizing to see that experience because I'm sure, like, most people who were stoners in high school, like, yeah, that's just kind of what they were doing. But then, I mean, like, he's entertaining. Obviously, like, the voice where it does very much, like, pop out. It does read, like, a when, you know, when someone says, like, oh, it's voicey, like, it has that element to it. I mean, it's snarky, but it's also, like, kind of funny and unique way of describing the characters around him. And like, you definitely get the fact, like you get the bias. And so it's sort of like going in, you're like, okay, what does this kid think about the world? And so it's just kind of entertaining to see like how he saw it for so long. But I really do think it is this like non-judgmental way they're just presenting this kid's life. That's true. He's not like a stoner class clown, which I think was very much like an archetype that I was familiar with, where it was like, yeah, a stoner who's also like always making jokes or always the butt of the jokes. We don't get the sense that he's like a stoner goth kid, which which I knew really well as a tween and teen in the early to mid aughts. He's just like, like you said, he's very neutral. Like he's just a guy. Um, it's his stories that make him interesting. Like it opens on the story of how he almost died at Disney World. And even though the book did lose me a couple of times just because it's so long, like I was pulled immediately in with that story because I'm a sucker for like, when an author sets their fiction in such a specific real life place, like on the It's a Small World ride in Disney World, he has this like wild anecdote of something that happened to him. And so that's what makes him interesting much more than like what he does or who he who he is on a daily basis. And the way he observes other people is interesting. I was a little bit nervous about Gonzo. You referenced Gonzo, who becomes Cameron's like road trip buddy before too long. But Gonzo was identified early in the book as a dwarf. And I was like, oh no, this is going to become like the butt of a joke. It's 2009. Like, I just don't know how this is going to go. And I feel like there were moments when the language was a little icky and ableist, but for the most part, I feel like it was handled okay. And it was handled in the way that like, honestly, a kid like Cameron probably would have handled it. Like, he probably would be snarky about meeting somebody like Gonzo. And that doesn't make it right, but it all tracked for me. It's like, yes, like this jaded, cynical kid meets this guy in a bathroom. He makes some of these comments about him, but luckily it's not the thing that, you know, ultimately defines Gonzo, which I appreciated. Yeah, yeah, it definitely felt like you weren't going into it being like, oh, Libba Bray like thinks this about. So yeah, no, I mean, it definitely like, I think by establishing that very clear 
bias and like who really knows like when it comes to like language and ableism right from 2009 like where the bias comes in from the author versus the character but like you're right it does definitely feel like this is the way he is seeing this this guy and then like by developing gonzo as like an actual person i definitely like don't remember like i remember that he was a dwarf but it wasn't like oh that's his main characteristic it was like he had all this other stuff going on that yeah made him feel like a fully fleshed out character and like i don't think i've seen like really any other ya that has is it yeah dwarfs i is that the correct term now uh, i believe it is because i be- because i think well okay to be clear and listeners you can correct me my understanding is that people who have dwarfism will often refer to themselves as dwarfs or as having dwarfism I think the term, the phrase little people is also acceptable. I was happy to see that there was no mention of the word midget in this book, at least not outside of sort of like an obvious nod to somebody being an asshole to to Gonzo. I think that for 2009, like it was, it was okay based on my understanding. Um, And to your point, Carlin, like these things are always changing, quite frankly, by the time this episode drops, like I could be wrong, who knows? So that doesn't make it right. And obviously we want to be as thoughtful as we can be in our language, but all we can do is like look at this book that was written in 2009 and do our best with it. So that's Gonzo. And I I do want to dive into what you were saying earlier on about Gonzo a bit more. We'll start to unpack like the wildness of the plot shortly, but Gonzo, as I mentioned, like ultimately is defined by so much more than just his stature. And I, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that like Cameron makes fun of Gonzo for like things way more than his size because all these other things come up about him and he is this complicated guy. And you mentioned that he is one of the only characters that you're aware of or one of the only characters that you remember sort of identifying as somebody who shared some of your tendencies and some of your same like concerns about life. So if if you're open to it, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, so I don't remember what he was diagnosed with. It feels very like hypochondria combined with like, a, there's a technical term for germophobia, but like that kind of like those umbrellas. And yeah, I mean, like I really suffered from emetophobia, I think from like age eight until like in my 20s. So it was like, I was like, deep in these again it's like a form of ocd so it's like these thought patterns you have like not being able to escape for instance like on this road trip gonzo will only like eat very specific foods and like that was something that i had experienced and it was like this really specific thing that you don't really you know it's something where you usually people like go out of their way to be like oh this is an ocd book but it was like he just had that and cameron didn't necessarily like sometimes he would like tease Gonzo about it but it was more like a again it was just something that was objectively happening and it's like like the detail was always there it was always tracking which I really appreciated where it wasn't just like a oh haha like one joke with Gonzo and his grilled cheese it was like he kept doing that it just became a character trait like it stopped having a negative or like stopped having a connotation to it that I thought was really interesting where like yeah this guy he definitely has like hypochondria and like it's egged on by his mom who like clearly has it worse yes but it yeah it just became like the it became like it felt like neutral character traits at some point and it made me feel like very seen in a way where it's like yeah this thing that i have doesn't make me any better and it does not make me like any 
worse. And so it was just nice. Again, it was something that I never really saw before. And especially where it's not like a, oh, this is OCD type thing. It was just as Cam would probably perceive it. Like he's not going to go looking for diagnoses. He's just like, oh yeah, this guy's doing this. I guess I'll just keep <laughs> keeping note of all the things that Gonzo's doing. Yeah, but there's no label on it is what you're saying, right? Like there's no, there wasn't a big moment of like diagnosis for Gonzo. This is just the way he behaves and the way he has to navigate the world. Yeah. I did find his relationship with his mom fascinating. And most of that, of course, happens off the page. But like you said, Gonzo has this mom who, you know, I think has has really sort of, whether it's genetic that they both deal with hypochondria or whether it's something that, you know, they've influenced in each other. Gonzo is just really afraid of pretty much everything because his mom is afraid of pretty much everything. And in a book that does feel very adult in some ways, because you don't see a lot of adults, like these kids aren't really under any sort of like parental supervision at any point in the book. For the most part, they're on this road trip. And like, again, we don't know if it's real or or it's fake. It was kind of nice to be reminded that like, oh, right, like they're kids. Like Gonzo is a teenager. And if it weren't for Gonzo having those moments of being like, I don't want my mom to be upset with me. I think I kind of would have forgotten that these are like, you know, children that are out doing these big things that are actually really scary. So I thought that was a nice way to keep to keep things grounded with their age. All right, let's talk about the mad cow disease of it all because yeah. I need I need help making sense of the twists and turns of this book. And it all starts with the mad cow. So Cameron starts having these hallucinations in class for the most part. They cause him to lash out. Uh, for example, there's an incident where he accidentally hits Chet, who is Jenna, his sister's boyfriend. And Chet is like the golden boy at school. He's like super into church. But not in like a weird way, as Cameron says, like it's like very cool the way Chet's into <laughs> church. And like we all knew that person in high school. And in the middle of one of his hallucinations, when Cameron's like kind of trying to like run away from these fire giants that he's seeing, he he hits Chet and it causes all of these problems at school. He's referred out to different counselors, drug counselors, shrinks as he calls them. Ultimately, after like all of these different specialists, they figure out that these hallucinations that he's having are linked to mad cow disease, which of course has a more official scientific name and is linked to like these prions, if I understand it correctly, that are eating away at your brain, which is really upsetting. And I would echo what you said earlier, Carlin, which is that like mad cow disease is a condition that I think is sort of like clowned on because it's not something that you hear about very much. And I read that Libba Bray was inspired to write this book when her mom told her that a man in their hometown had been diagnosed with mad cow. So this is like something that she was like, oh, right, like this is a real thing. This could actually happen to people. I do think if I'd read this book when I was a teenager, I would have immediately been convinced that I was going to contract Mad Cow somehow. Yeah. Because yeah, it's like such, it's, what are the, what are the odds? And then you read this book and you're like, this disease sounds horrible. I don't want to get it. So Cameron has to like deal with the reality that he's going to die. They basically are like, you can come to St. Jude's. We can sort of do some experimental things that might extend your life, but there's not really a lot of hope for him. And I think the choice that Libba Bray made to have this fate befall a character that like is so apathetic and so neutral in so many ways was of course an intentional one. Why do you think that works? Like why do you think it works so much better to have a character like Cameron get Mad Cow than a character, for example, like Jenna? Like why why is he the right hero for this story? I mean... To some extent, it, like, makes it so he has, like, this almost blank slate where 
he's not distracted by like his past or like his present, I guess, in any way where it's not like, oh, I have to say goodbye to my friends, right? Like I, there's so many things I'm losing. It's like this idea of like losing possibility and that I thought was really interesting. And I mean, from a story perspective, this book is so long, but it like almost made the transition into like this almost new cast of characters. Like once Gonzo and Dulcie and all, and like all the hallucination people start showing up, you're like, it doesn't, it like didn't matter as much that you lost like the real world characters. But I mean, on a thematic level, I don't know, because it, it doesn't really feel like it's a lesson of like, you know, don't take your life for granted. Yeah. But like, at the same time, it kind of has that vibe a little bit of like, he can't go back at this point. But like, what does the lack of doing things in your life like that even necessarily mattered to him? Like, what do you now do? And you kind of see that with like the Stacy plotline and yeah, like the losing virginity of like, oh, you know, like I've been idle and like not making these moves, like now I'm going to start doing that. But yeah, I don't know. I think definitely like the a little bit more blank slate, it just sort of helped with the story of like being able to fill it in with this like very rich hallucination world in a way. Yeah. And if we're going to talk about hallucinations, we have to talk about Dulcie, who you just mentioned. Dulcie is this like angel fairy kind of like manic pixie dream girl hallucination character i would say who becomes cameron's guide and early in this book there are references to the fact that cameron and his classmates are reading don quixote in school so i was like okay and then when we find out that dulcie is named dulcie i was like oh okay so she this is like a reference to dulcinea who is of course one of the characters in don quixote my understanding my knowledge base for don quixote is pretty small I remember my grandmother took me to see it when I was in middle school and she like loved that musical. And I was like, this is boring. Like, where's all the fun dancing? (laughs) So I like don't know that much about it, except that I remember seeing the play and being like, this guy seems a little wacky. And that tracks with the plot of this book because Cameron is going through some weird shit and trying to figure out what's going on. But Dulcie basically like comes to him a couple of times. And at some point when he's in the hospital, she informs him that like he not only has to like save himself if he wants to not die from mad cow disease but he also has to save the universe because everything is connected and the same things that have infected his brain have infected the universe and so it's like all on him to find this like mysterious dr x who can like fix everything am i understanding all of that correctly as i said i i yeah. feel like i was on a journey and i just want to make sure that i was <laughs> understanding all of this correctly yeah, yeah. No, that all sounds correct to me. It's like Libre like infused this like world ending stakes, but at the same time you're kind of aware of the fact that like you're still in the real world. So you're like, Oh, I feel kind of bad. Like I don't think this is real, but also at the same time it's like oddly compelling where you're like, Okay, where will this lead? Right. And that gets to the question that I that I mentioned early on, which is that like what's real and what's fake and like does it matter because I think to your point like you can't help but wonder with all of this stuff that the author has thrown into this book like where is this gonna lead because as the book continues it gets increasingly more complicated they go to all of these places they're in all these different worlds there's like reality tv there's game shows there's a church there's a diner fire they're like wanted by the fbi it is a true 
it's it's kind of a clusterfuck and in a, a wild fun way yeah and you're like I don't know where all this is leading and I don't know how much of it is in like the quote real world versus Cameron's hallucinatory world and then it's like does it matter and for a teen reader does it matter especially because again I'm taking myself back to being 19 and I'm like which is how old I would have been when the book came out or if I read it when I was younger like I think I would have been like wow like this is so existential and like who is any of it real like what's real like what is life what's the meaning of life I think that would have been part of the appeal so yeah I really had to continue as I was reading this book be like I don't know where this is leading and I don't really care. And I also at a certain point had to be like, I don't really remember what happened in the last chapter and like it's no longer relevant. <laughs> is, yeah. Did you have that too or was that just me? No, no, for sure. I think I remember like reading it as a teen. I mostly had latched onto the road trip part. Yeah. So I was just like, okay, where are they going to go next? Right. This is fun. And like completely didn't like, I either like purposely didn't process or like didn't process the like fact that like there was probably it like end time to this and like yeah at some point yeah I think I probably had to like let go and be like I don't understand what's going on it doesn't matter and then reading it the second time like I knew what happened in the end and it was still like yeah no I would completely forget what happened in the chapter before and it is sort of funny the way that like yeah they don't get referenced again yeah and like there are some chunks where it's like three or four chapters I think I remember like in the church of like gaslighting of happiness or whatever like, yeah, no, that doesn't come up again. And I think I remember, like, the sequences that stuck with me the most. Like, it was probably the reality show that happened in, like, Florida. Yeah. Like, they go to, like, a Spring Breakers type thing. And because it felt somehow like a false destination. And so like, that must have been what I was clinging to, like, while reading, being like, oh, they're trying to get to it was Daytona, right? They're trying to get to Daytona for some reason. And then they end up in Disney World, too. And so I just remember Florida being like the thing they're trying to get to. And then everything else along the way, you're like, oh, this is this is like a normal road trip with some pizzazz on it. And then once it starts getting to the end where like the Cameron's idea of plot elements start like coming to a head, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on anymore. I, is Dr. I don't think Dr. X is real. Does he still have a plot? And like, it, yeah, it starts to break down. And you're just like, okay. I'm still having fun. I don't know what's going on. It's okay. You're like, you're invested in a way where you're like, the reading comprehension doesn't matter anymore. Well, because I think, you know, with all due respect to teen readers too, like as an adult, I'm reading this book and I'm like, okay, so they're, they're going on this road trip because Dulcie has told Cameron that he is the only person who can find Dr. X and he needs Dr. X to both save his life and then save the universe. And then, Cameron loops Gonzo into this and so they're going to be buddies and they're going to go off on this road trip and like that's fun cool great excellent but as an adult I understand enough about like Cameron's diagnosis and I've read enough books with this kind of device to understand that like it's very likely that even though Libra Bray has written fantasies in the past like this could be read as a fantasy but it's very likely that it's not a fantasy and this is really like Cameron's like sort of dying experience like this is what he's seeing as he's laying in a hospital bed dying and I know that as an adult reader again with all due respect to teen readers I don't necessarily know that they would all make that jump right away and I think there is more 
ambiguity as far as like, is this real or is this like actually this fantastical adventure? And maybe that makes it even more fun because as an adult, I'm like, this is just like, is this really what happens when you die? Like you think that maybe you can save yourself by finding some guy named Dr. X and you meet this like random kid who you went to school with, who's like going to help you. And then you meet a garden gnome. Like this seems nuts and exhausting. So this might be a case, I think for me, where I'm like, maybe being an adult really got in the way a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think. I think for me, it was like I had certain, like I got to a certain point where I like, as a reader, I was like, okay, like, yeah, he's actually going on this road trip. Like when I was a teenager, I'd be like, okay, I believe the road trip was happening. But like he somehow escaped and was actually going on the journey. Like, so the gonzo was real. And then like, I think as a teen, I remember being like, okay, the garden gnome, I don't buy that. That's a hallucination. But it was like, I could buy that it was a hallucination within a real thing that he was like physically walking around doing. And now I noticed like on my second reread as an adult, you see references to like him being in the hospital. Like there's like little things of him breaking out of it. And so now I'm like, oh, I didn't catch that when I was younger. I was so into like believing this road trip was real, even if like the destination wasn't real. And now I'm like, oh, (laughs) he's just in the hospital. Like, I did start to believe that, like, you know, you're like, okay, yeah, like, this is my new interpretation. This is definitely most likely what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I think he was in the hospital the whole time. That's how I read it, at least. But yeah, we're not, yeah, I mean, we can't tackle every stop on the road trip because, as you said, this is a long book and they do a lot and they see a lot. But I, I do think we should take a pause to maybe, like, call out moments that we especially liked or moments that we didn't understand or didn't get. I'm just gonna say right now, All of the stuff about physics and science went straight over my head. One of the stops they take on the road trip is to like a lab and Cameron goes into some sort of a time travel device and there's like this band that they all really like who seems to be time traveling and there's all of these scientists that are talking about wormholes and I had no idea and I was really concerned that I was going to like miss the whole point of the book because I didn't get all of that physics (laughs) stuff and I was relieved that that didn't really seem to be the case. Yeah I mean honestly I hardly remember that part like I think the stuff that stuck out to me was like at the very beginning when like things hadn't ramped up quite yet like remembering New Orleans like I remember that part I do you remember them like hitchhiking with the cult? It, it really seemed like a cult. Whatever was going on with that church. Yeah. I remember them. And then I like I feel like I kind of remember Daytona because it like because Stacy, this um her sister Jenna's like best friend that he's like into comes back in. It's like that was kind of an anchoring point of like, okay. Now I remember what's going on. And then I feel like I lost it again after like once they started getting involved in like the reality show. And then when it got back to Disneyland, then I was like, okay. I remember this from the beginning. We're back. I have been to Disneyland, like Disney World. I know what this is. Like, it's definitely the moments where if you don't like know, like, yeah, with the science, like, I don't know science either. So I was like, I don't know. Oh, they went to a frat house too. Yeah. That's where I got the garden gnome. But yeah, like you don't remember anything in order either. Yeah. I loved the church stuff just because I'm fascinated by like evangelicalism and like mega church stuff. And I thought that what Libibre was trying to do in that section felt so relevant to real life basically listeners they meet this group of people that they're the it's cessnab it's like the it's the church of like smoothies and shakes and bowling essentially and their whole premise is like that everybody is special and everybody is part of each other's specialness and everybody is happy all the time and if you're not happy you should just have a smoothie and go bowling and 
once you go bowling, you'll be happy. And when you're bowling, you'll always knock down all the pins and get a strike and then you'll be happy. Like it's just this kind of like circular situation of like never being unhappy and there never being like authentic emotion. And I felt like that was very relevant to like, I don't know, like TikTok mental health influencers, like manifestation theory or like prosperity gospel stuff. Like I feel like there's so much out there in different communities right now that comes up in that whole section, like different philosophies, different ways of looking at the world that we see in those interactions. And like Cameron is tempted to fall into that. Like he kind of just wants to stop feeling the way he's feeling because he has a lot on his mind, obviously. And he just wants to like be taken in by them. And Gonzo has to pull him out and be like, look, like I know this seems really great, but like you have to stop drinking smoothies and bowling because none of it's real. And I just think that speaks to like a lot of themes that, we all have to deal with as far as like, do we want life to be authentic? Do we want it to be safe? How much do we want to feel in life? Like, I don't know. I just, I really enjoyed that. I I felt like there's a lot to dig into there. I probably would have read a whole book about that section. No, absolutely. And I think it stuck to me more the second time because it was like, yeah, like that philosophy, like I don't remember reading that section when I was younger, but now, yeah, like you said, like there's so much of it that feels like relevant to today. And like, it's something like, everyone will inevitably like try like you have to have that think at some point of like being like do you want your life to be safe and like the same or do you want it to have like flaws and have like depth to it in that way but it's obviously so relevant for Cameron and like (laughs) this particular moment of like the hero wanting to like give up but it's give up in a way that's like really appealing (laughs) and I also just I remember this time around it was so funny where like that section where he has trying to like read books and they keep taking his books because yes. they're not like happy. And I was like, oh my God, this is what Twitter does. Yes, yes. This is book banning. This is Twitter. This is all the bad things. <laughs> yeah. So that was like really, I was like, oh, this got, oh no, this aged. I don't know if that's aging well or aging badly where you're like, oh, yeah. Or is it aging too well? Like... Yeah, it might be aging too well. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned you liked the like the sort of reality TV game show moments um, that we see with Cameron when he's on spring break. I like that too. It brought me back to those like early days of MTV reality shows. Like I feel like 2009 was kind of the heyday of like Jersey Shore and like that category of reality shows and so it made sense to me that Cameron would find himself in Daytona and there would be these like I don't know shiny squeaky clean but also like I don't know smarmy um, game show hosts that would try to like get random kids to participate in their shows I liked that and again I probably would have read more about that section yeah yeah I mean that's also one where it felt like yeah like you said it felt very like of the time so it was this really interesting time capsule like reading it a second time going back where you're like oh yeah that did used to be a thing we did used to watch like so much reality tv and I felt like it was more in the zeitgeist in a way where like it felt like it was important to talk about and that happens in Libra Bray's other works like with beauty queens that's also about reality television so I think it's fun to like see in like an author's era of like what themes they want to talk about and like what things end up coming up. But I, was, I think it's funny. I think it was also a really fun little plant where like characters will talk about celebrities in universe and yes. then you meet the fictional celebrities. I just think that's so funny, whatever that happens. Yeah, I liked that. I liked what she did with the host. She's definitely like doing a lot as far as like poking at 
society. Like she's poking at reality TV culture of like the late 2000s. She's poking at mega church culture, which I would imagine at that time was becoming a little bit more mainstream, a little bit more public. There's a whole um, storyline at the beginning of the book about standardized testing. And I remember that being a big thing. I graduated from high school in 2008. And I remember I was the editor of the newspaper. And in one of the first issues of the newspaper my senior year, we wrote like a whole section about like standardized testing and like how controversial that was. So yeah, at the time when this book was published in 2009, standardized testing, like no child left behind, that was very of the time. So I feel like Libba Bray is doing a lot here. She's trying to interrogate a lot of different things. I wonder if maybe she's interrogating like too many things, but the Prince Committee didn't really seem concerned about that. They gave her the award. (laughs) So who cares what I have to say all these years later? I'm curious, like, I feel like, I feel like I have so many questions for Libra Bray. And I'm curious, Carlin, like, if any come to mind for you about this book, like, if you had the opportunity to, like, talk to her and be like, I love this book when I was a kid, I really wanted to come back to it. It's so interesting. And we have questions, like what questions, especially writer to writer, do you think you would most want to ask? I mean, I guess to some extent, like, I'm really curious about balance, Mm -hmm. like, because there are so many locations, like you said, there's so many, like, themes and so many like conversations being had like where did she decide where to place the um like relevance of like what area will get more screen like I guess page time I don't think what you say like how did that end up being balanced in there and then like did she write the book like almost in earnest with Cam's brain of like was she writing it as if she was just writing a like was she thinking she was writing a fantasy was she like writing a road trip book like to what extent was she always like going to be planting the kind of like adult interpretation of like this kid in the hospital or like do you write it as if like that as if you are really writing like a road trip book like what because you know it's like also because you're in his head like what is the actual characterization and how does that translate then into the like hallucination world of like is gonzo the same or is he purposely different depending on what section of the book you're in like either before the mad cow disease or after or like do you allow those things to meld together for like easy to say right of like you can't like do you have two versions of every character or do you just like let them all bleed, bleed together yeah it's kind of like what what was her way into this like what because there's so i can't even imagine writing this there must have been like so many different things like she was working on so many different levels I wonder what her way in was I also want to know like what was cut because I can only imagine like what didn't make it into the book and I also like we didn't even talk about Balder who is this like garden gnome brought to life who's like actually a Norse god and I just I want to know like the inspiration for Balder like why why Balder really like I just didn't understand Balder so I'd love to talk to her about that Listeners, I hate to break it to you, but like I'm I'm pretty sure the way I read it, at least as an adult, is that Cameron dies in the end. Like, is that how you read it? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I hope that I'm not being too skeptical. Yeah, I, I did read it that way. It seems pretty obvious to me that this is just one long hallucination. This is kind of like the journey that he's going through in his brain while he's in the hospital. But at the end, there's a scene where like we see his parents saying goodbye to him and he's being taken off life support. There's this like one last chapter that kind of like calls that into question, I think, or it's meant to, but it was pretty obvious to me that he does die in the end. Yeah. Which is sad. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I don't remember like processing that as again, like 14, 15 years old. 
but yeah no i mean like that was something like even then i was like aware of that but like that wasn't what i remembered like i guess i remembered it as like a fact of like if you were telling the plot of this story it would be like this kid get, gets mad cow disease and he i guess i would say yeah like he goes on this really weird wacky road trip and then you end up returning to the hospital room where he dies like it almost didn't matter that, like yeah you would have to distinguish whether or not that really happened because it felt so like deeply into the plot but no the death part too and again, it, it almost felt like maybe it was softening the blow for readers because it was so deep into his head at that point that like because you didn't like necessarily like it wasn't as straightforward as it could have been like a really sad disease book. Like, you know, the way they do like sick lit otherwise, like, I don't know. Because, yeah, I remember it didn't affect me. Like, it affected me more the second time when I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a reality <laughs> <He's> here. <dead. laughs> sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was an interesting read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. On the whole, how did coming back to going bovine as an adult compare to, like, what you remember about it from when you were a kid? Do you feel like the book holds up? Did you enjoy it more or less than you thought you might, knowing that it meant a lot to you when you were a kid? Yeah. I mean, I think I still enjoyed it a lot. I did remember being like, this is so long. I don't remember it being this long. Well, we had so much time when we were teenagers. Now we don't have that kind of yeah, time. Yeah. So... <laughs> I honestly, that was like the part where I was like, oh, I don't like this as much. But like, I think I was still like so sort of shocked by how like nice of a time capsule it was combined with like how it did kind of, I mean, like obviously to some extent, like it didn't age well, but like it aged well enough that like if for some reason someone wanted a very weird book, I like wouldn't feel bad recommending this. Yeah. Where I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're looking for something super weird? I have the book for you. Yeah. No, for sure. And like, I don't know going back and reading like all the way I read in the 2000, like 2010s, if that would still be the case. I don't know, Liver Bray's just such a good writer that like, like, yeah, like I can see your talent here. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Um, well, I'm glad that you introduced me to it because it's unlike anything that I've ever read before. I was shocked to find that, you know, this was like a Prince winner that I'd never heard of. I guess it sort of fell into that time when I was in college and like, you know, only reading for school and that kind of thing. Other than going bovine, Carlin, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, it's like 2023, 20, like debut season, like all my friends who like I'm debuting too. And so yeah. I tried to like shout them out. Book. Yeah, shout them out. I swear. So I'm just like, I'm trying to think of like specifically like YA contemporary because I feel like I've been reading a lot of that right now. Um, so Out of Character by Jenna Miller. Always the Almost by Edward Underhill. And then books that are not necessarily debuts, but still like love them. Plus One by Kelsey Rodkey is one that I adore that I think comes out in June. I'm giving you a lot of books that aren't out yet, but maybe they will be by the time. That's okay. Pre-order. We love to pre-order everybody. Yeah, pre-order yeah, them. Yeah, pre-order them. It helps authors. Yeah. And like in the adult world, Rachel and Solomon has a new book coming out, Business or Pleasure. And adore that. So pre-order everything. All these like YA to adult authors. I love it. I don't know how Rachel Lynn Solomon writes so many books while we're talking about her. Like oh, she's been on the show before. I do not understand how she is so prolific. It's unbelievable. But I will include links to all of those shout outs in the show notes for this episode. Yes, even if those aren't out listeners, you can go pre-order them. It helps Carlin's friends, especially those debuts. We want authors to get the chance to see those numbers coming in before the books even hit shelves. 
But as you said, you're also debuting this year. So congratulations, first of all. Thank you. And what can you tell us about what you have coming out? Okay, let's see. So technically I have two books coming out, but like, so Time Out is my YA. I co-wrote it with um, actor Sean Hayes Casually. and Todd Millinery. It's very casual that you yeah, co-wrote yeah. it with Sean Hayes. I have questions about that, but that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, so that's, um, it's a YA contemporary. Um, I guess it kind of has like a rom-com element to it. It's basically about this teenage boy who's like a basketball star in small town Georgia. And he decides to come out to his like essentially his town at a pep rally and it doesn't go well. So he has to like reinvent himself with like his true self sort of like being out there in the world. And then he ends up falling in love with a journalist for the school newspaper who was supposed to do an op-ed like a an article on him when he was like a basketball star. So it's like emotional and also very like swoony and funny and yeah. Is Sean Hayes as fun as I imagine that he is? Is he like everything that we all think he is? Yeah, I mean, I haven't really like gotten to have much face-to-face time. So it's mostly through like notes. But yeah, no, it's it's really just like this like out-of-body experience of being like, wow, I <laughs> wait, <laughs> what's going on? Just Jack McFarlane? <laughs> is that you? <laughs> Yeah, no, like, I have to remind myself every time, like, I get notes and, like, we do, like, collaborative efforts of being, like, okay, this, this, this is, this, wow, this is, this is an actor, this is, yeah, no, I swear, I, I don't know, but it's, it's very cool. Yeah. And, like, it's been a really nice, like, create, creative experience, like, collaborate in this way. But keep going, because as you said, you have another book coming out this year. I see it behind you looking so beautiful. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so then I, technically this book comes out like a month before Time Out. So I have an um, adult queer rom-com called Sizzle Reel that is out with Vintage Anchor. Time Out is May 30th and this one's April 18th. So this one is basically about a 24-year-old talent manager's assistant who comes out as bi and like thinks she has to like make up for lost time because she's not like a teenager coming out. And so she decides to try to like seduce this ambiguously gay actress client and so it's just it's funny it also is kind of like that mix of like silly romantic shenanigans and then like some emotional underlying themes to it but yeah they kind of work together in a weird way we didn't plan that out or anything but it works well congratulations so exciting to have such a big year i will make sure that listeners know where to find both books and it has been such a pleasure chatting with you thank you for taking the time oh my god thank you so much for inviting me on this was so fun so fun bye SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>